0: Ready to form Voltron. I am this is a job for Superman. Power Rangers. Right away, Michael. Autobots, transform. <laughs> By the power of Grey Skull! Everybody and welcome back to Charlie's GeekCast. I am your host, Charlie Niemeyer, and today we are checking out something new. Well, new for me, anyway. I made a request for suggestions of things to cover on the show, and many of you responded. One that piqued my interest, because it was kind of the only thing that wasn't Superman, and I thought it would be interesting to check out something that isn't necessarily Superman for a little bit, was suggested by the Conway Twitty of Podcasting, Mr. J. David Weeder, But you can call him Dave. He suggested the Star Trek comics from Gold Key. Now, Gold Key published comics from around 1962 to 1984 and is mostly known for their licensed books, covering everything from Looney Tunes to Hanna-Barbera to Disney to Bullwinkle, Happy Days, Adam-12, even more than that. If there was a popular TV show or cartoon, Gold Key probably had a comic for it. Star Trek, meanwhile, was the brainchild of Gene Roddenberry, and the original series, which ran for just three seasons starting in 1966, featured a rather diverse, for the time, crew on an exploratory mission around the galaxy. The series was followed up with an animated series, and then was pretty quiet until the series made the jump to the big screen in the late 70s. However, its influence was amazing, and is still felt today. During that quiet time I mentioned, NASA's first space shuttle was named the Enterprise. This was just a test vehicle. It never actually went into space, but it was their first of the new fleet of space shuttles that they were coming up with for reusable vehicles to go up into space. And, of course, when they christened it, they had most of the cast, plus Gene Roddenberry, were all there. And there have been numerous movies and TV spinoffs and podcasts, many of which are on this very network. Not bad for a show that just lasted three years. Oh, and although it was rather sporadic, at least at the beginning, Gold Key's Star Trek comics also helped bridge that big, quiet gap, lasting until 1979, which was around the time when the movie came out and the license started going back and forth between DC and Marvel. As for my Star Trek history, eh, I don't really have much. I've seen a few episodes of the original series. I saw quite a bit of the animated show when it, when it was on Nickelodeon when I was a kid. I've seen the first four movies, I've seen a handful of next-gen episodes, a couple episodes of Deep Space Nine, especially the one where they go back to the Trouble with Tribbles episode from the original series. Uh, I've seen quite a bit of Voyager, thanks to my dad, but I believe that was limited to just the first two seasons before we kind of fell off of that. Uh, I saw the first reboot movie, or is that what they call that? The reboot movie? Anyway, uh, I haven't seen Enterprise... Or any of the newer shows since then Or any of the other movies um, I had a few comics from the mid-90s When DC had the license But I really didn't read them They came in a big pack With a whole bunch of other comic books uh, As far as I know Network founder Scott Gardner has them now Unless he sold them off But that's about it So I know And I know that's blasphemy, me Especially on this network But it just wasn't my thing Just like I don't like Harry Potter <gasps> Anyway, uh, we're going to see how that's going to affect my view on the first issue of the Gold Key series right after these quick promos. See you in a second. Mr. Scott, shall we give the Enterprise a proper shakedown? I would say it's time for that, sir. I... Before this drama unfolds, we give welcome to the ones named Kirk and Spock. You! What planet is this? Which one have we used the captain? Do we violate the treaty, Captain? Sir, someone is stealing the Enterprise. What are you scratching us? Humans make illogical decisions. Destruct sequence completed and engaged. No! Yes, I found Mrs. Spock. I'm talking to Mrs. Spock to understand. Starfleet, do you read? This is the Enterprise. We are under attack. Environment Scott. scott gardner and chris honeywell the two true freaks every month for a new episode of star trek monthly monday every month you will get a classic episode of star trek the original series a star trek comic and who knows what else episodes of star trek monthly monday can be found for free at twotruefreaks.com they can also be downloaded for free from itunes i'm captain benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Red alert! All crew members report to battle stations. Red alert! Shields up! What shields? You start lead officers! Now start acting like it! Oh, it's just Garrett. Plain, simple. Garrett. Dex, we might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. The wormhole does bring them our way, doesn't it? Everyone wants a piece of the new frontier. This will surely become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. And to start with, one of our most important hosts. Quite a motley crew you've assembled here at Fenji. Listen to The Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. And here are your hosts, Andrew Leyland and Paul Spataro. Bloody hell. Oh, I love a woman in uniform. TwoTrueFreaks.com Space, a final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission, to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life, and new civilizations to boldly go where no man has gone before. All right, Star Trek number one, cover dated October, 1967, with an on sale date of July 27th, 1967, and a cover price of 12 cents. The title of this first issue is The Planet of No Return, written by Dick Wood, artist is Neviu Zakara, and the letterer based on my experience in comics and comics from this vintage, it looks like Ben Oda. There's nothing that says that. The letterers weren't really credited back then. But that looks like Ben Oda's handwriting based on what I've seen of his at DC Comics later on in the Bro- later in the Bronze Age. In any event, We begin our story Captain's Log Stardate 1809.2 The Enterprise is exploring Galaxy Alpha and has not yet spotted any life anywhere until someone spots a planet steeped in Kelly Green vegetation Captain Kirk immediately decides to send down an exploration party but as the ship gets closer to the planet it passes through a weird space fog because of course it does Inside this fog are strange plant spores that fasten themselves to the ship and are then able to seep through the ship's superstructure itself. Which is weird because not only is there a fog in airless space, but you would think they'd have some kind of shields up to prevent the Enterprise from being hit or damaged by space debris. I mean, there's little rocks, from what I've heard anyway. I'm no expert on this. But there's, there's like rocks and stuff floating all over that could cause problems, but oh, I guess not. Anyway, Mr. Spock and Dr. McCoy, who is wearing a green shirt rather than his normal blue shirt for some reason, are preparing rations for the exploration party when the spores seep in and start turning some of the guinea pigs. And I say some of them. I think there's really only two guinea pigs. But anyway, uh, starts turning the guinea pigs into hostile trees. Help soon comes in the form of some guards. Not sure what they were guarding. I don't know why you'd guard guinea pigs, but whatever. After Spock calls for them to help. Apparently setting their phasers to vaporize, they blast away the plants. Soon, both men meet with Kirk to discuss the situation, with Spock hypothesizing that the guinea pigs picked up some alien spores while they were being quote-unquote space-tested weeks earlier. So while he stays behind to investigate, Kirk, Bones, and three... Actually, I say three... Kirk Bones, this girl named Janice, and then two I'm thinking who are original characters Hunt and Dean all head down to planet KG which stands for Kelly Green. After beaming down to the planet's surface Hunt almost immediately passes through a patch of mist and begins turning into a plant himself At this point, a giant plant uses a form of super suction to suck the crew members into itself, presumably for a nice big meal. But before they can be eaten, the plant is attacked by a weird-looking tree. The battle is fierce, but the tree eventually wins before it collapses dead. A quick search turns up Hunt's ID bracelet on one of the branches, indicating that Hunt had completely transformed into a tree and then saved them. Unfortunately, everyone is wearing matching jumpsuits, so, we'll never, so we will never know if he had a red shirt or not. After burying Hunt, Kirk makes his report to the Enterprise. Spock is ready for them to beam back to the ship, but Kirk states that despite the dangers, they are going to stay on the planet for more investigation. Soon, they find a community of plant life, com- complete with houses and other buildings also made of vegetation. But they get a little too close and are soon attacked by what Kirk figures are sentry trees. As the trees close in, they all use their phasers to blast a hole in their rings, large enough for them to slip through and eventually find a cave to hide in. Unfortunately, there is a second entrance into the cave, which another plant uses to grab Janus. The men are unable to stop the giant plant, but they follow it as it drops Janice off in some sort of cattle pen. They attempt to blast through the thorny barrier, but new thorns quickly grow to replace the destroyed ones before they can even pass through it. The next part of this story involves observation for the most part. After watching the plants herd some animals into a slaughter run where they are fed to some different looking trees, they realize they don't have much time before the same thing happens to Janice. In desperation, Kirk comes up with an idea to have the Enterprise blast the plants, but the calculations have to be perfect to ensure none of them are killed in the process. As they finish relaying the readings to Spock, Janice is grabbed and is herded toward those weird trees. Fortunately, Spock's blast is spot-on, vaporizing the plants and part of the thorny barrier, but leaving Janice unharmed. After a quick rescue, the trees start shooting out more of those spores from earlier, but the team are beamed back to the Enterprise before any of them can be touched by the spores or infected. Janice and Kirk are ready to leave, but Spock has calculated that if the planet continues to emit spores into space, they will eventually continue to float out there forever, infecting other planets, which will in turn emit more spores. There's only one way to stop all of this. Captain's Log, Stardate 1810.1. The Enterprise orbits around the planet, firing laser blasts to destroy all life on the planet. And as we watch all the vegetation burning away, the issue abruptly ends. Okay, a few things to get out of the way right up front. Keep in mind, this is the first issue. And according to the write-up, I got these from the trade paperbacks that are being put out by IDW. And according to the write-up, the first few issues were done without the writer or artists even seeing an episode of the show. They just had some promotional stills to go by so and, an, and kind of an outline. So there are some things that happen in here that are a little off, but you can kind of look past them. Number one, the transport room is referred to as the teleportation chamber in this issue. Also, in my limited experience with the original crew, Bones, who is not referred to as Bones at all in this issue, seems a bit more reverent toward Kirk than he is on the show. We also see no obvious evidence of any of the other well-known crew members like Chekhov, Sulu, Ohira, or even Scotty. All of this is due to the issues being worked on without the writer or artist having seen any of the episodes, like I said. In fact... Zakara apparently only had a few promotional stills to use for reference, which is why there is a concerted effort to limit the number of close-ups. It's also why Kirk rarely looks like William Shatner at all in this issue. I kind of like that this story follows the usual Star Trek formula, but manages to do it in a way that could not possibly have been done on a TV budget in the 60s. With two of the away team being original characters, you also had a sense of worry reading the issue, because that meant that either or both of them could die. I actually thought Janice was an original creation, but a little more research showed me that there actually was a character named Janice who was a blonde-haired woman that was on the show. I don't know if they knew this or if this is a coincidence. Maybe someone can let me know. Unfortunately, the second half of this story really dragged on a bit. The first half of the issue was pretty busy with all the setup and movement and the plant attack and all that stuff. But most of the second half was just observing and watching them herd animals and feed the plants just kind of hmm the genocidal ending is also kind of crazy too but very abrupt there isn't even a the end at the end of the last page i had to double check to make sure i wasn't missing something also at the end the enterprise can be seen flying in the skies over the planet which i don't believe ever happened on the original series or any other series or the movies except for that time where the enterprise was you know crashing into a planet The art is actually pretty good, though, although I do have to admit to being confused over which one was McCoy and which one was Kirk for most of the issue. They're all wearing the same outfits, and these two in particular have similar hair color. Dean had red hair, so he was kind of easy to pick out when they remembered to color his hair, and Janice was a blonde woman with a red wool hat because, of course, you're going to wear that when you go out. So she also kind of stood out, but these two were just white brown-haired men in the same outfits so they were they seemed kind of interchangeable even with the stuff they said but that's going to do it for this issue after a quick break i'll be back with some listener feedback but first playing us out is the number one song for the week of release which was windy by the association i'll be back in a bit Red alert, all hands to battle stations, engage. Captain Picard is a pain, isn't he? Interesting, no redeeming qualities. I think you should be destroyed. The great Captain Picard of Starfleet falls well, go back. Thou shalt most certainly die. Protect yourself, Captain, we they'll destroy you. We are dangerous. What can I offer except myself? Can we just get down to it, please? Get us out of orbit! One minute to offer this Join the two true freaks, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell, for Star Trek Monthly Monday. Every month, the freaks will bring you two episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation and more. Episodes of Star Trek Monthly Monday can be found for free at twotruefreaks.com. They can also be downloaded for free from iTunes. T. Kirk. Don't you read history? What did you say your name was? Captain Jean Luc Picard of the USS Enterprise. Which one of you is the captain? Do we violate the treaty, Captain? Red alert, all hands, battle stations This is Captain Kirk Incorrect Can we just get down to it, please? Prepare to attack, all hands, battle stations Monday's available the second Monday of every month at twotruefreeks.com. All right, and we're back with some feedback. Let's get right into it. I the last few episodes I recorded way ahead of time, so I've got a little bit of feedback this time, and it's nice to have more than just one thing to read. Not that there's a problem with that, but it's nice to have more than one thing to read, so let's keep let's go right into it. Starting from Dave McIlvaney, who sent this in back on August 4th, when the release of episode 60, and he writes, First, thank you for returning to the microphone with more Bronze Age Adventures of Superman. You've made this old man happy. You wondered why Vartox didn't get a redesigned costume the way Brainiac and Luther had, and had wondered what the fan reaction would have been if he had. I can't answer for fandom assembled, but this particular fan would probably not have liked the idea. Vartox, as you know, was sort of modeled on Sean Connery in the movie Zardoz. Zardoz? If you haven't seen it, do a Google image search for Zardoz. That was a ridiculous looking character in a ridiculous looking costume, and I think Vartox was supposed to look cheesy and ridiculous. This is what the fans expected, I think, and anything different would not have been met with joy. Good point! I don't know how you would update the cheesy 70s, very 70s-esque costume And still keep the flavor of the cheesiness. I mean, something would have... I think the most... I think getting rid of the mutton chops was probably the best they could do. Maybe something with the mustache. But still, I think the costume had to stay the way it was. Moving on to episode 61. Dave also commented on that one. And he writes, Yay! Vartox. Not really Vartox. Didn't see that coming. I agree with you that if Superman searched the planet for Lana, but missed her in the volcano, that's a big mistake on his part but perhaps the volcano had enough lead in it that he just couldn't x-ray it and assumed Lana wouldn't be in there. Not Superman's best work, certainly. That's a good point. Possibly. The very secret admirer subplot is remarkably creepy for the times, I think, but I'm hoping that it'll all be resolved soon. Besides the creepiness, I don't find the guy especially interesting as a character. He almost seems more like a plot device than a person. I'll be waiting eagerly for your next episode. Thank you. Well, you're welcome, Dave. And guess what? He was in the next episode. Isn't that cool? He was creepy, though. Now, before we get into Dave's comment for the next episode, we have our friend Russell Bragg returning. And he's a little further behind. So this is his comment, sent on August 17th, about episode 53. And he writes, Hi, Charlie. Sorry I haven't written more consistently lately. Just been busy and haven't been able to find the time. Better late than never, though. This episode featured Action Comics 545. I have all but 10 issues of the 500s and this unfortunately is one of those I don't have. I've have looked at the issue. I have looked at the issue online. I don't really have much to say about it. I may be the only one, but I didn't really care for Brainiac's new look. Maybe I'm not a robot person. I guess they felt they had to 80s up the characters, I don't know. To me, Brainiac will always be green with whatever color that jumpsuit was. Guess that's all I have to say for this time around. Keep up the great podcasting work and thanks for keeping me entertained. Russell Bragg, Clarksburg, West Virginia. Yeah, I would imagine that the Brainiac redesign was probably pretty divisive. I mean L- Luther is still Luther, he's just wearing armor, but Brainiac is gonna is a complete redo. Uh, although by this point I would say that the light green guy with the pink little jumpsuit was probably pushing it on the cheese factor. However, maybe if you could you could have just changed the costume without having to make him such an alien-looking robot. Maybe that would have been more down the middle. I mean, the green skin stuff has come back since then. Anyway, Russell followed that up pretty close to immediately with another one. And this time he's writing about episode 54. Hi Charlie. Wow, two issues for this episode. Superman 386 and Action Comics 546. I have both issues. As for the Superman comic, it was very active. Lots of different stories all put together to entertain the reader. I don't know if we had ever seen Luther and Clark talking together. Lois's parents almost look like Mom and Pa Kent. In this era, we are reminded that Superman got his powers directly from the sun and that his body doesn't act as a solar battery. If the sun goes out, or like in this story, technology prevents sun, prevents sun rays, from getting to him, Superman has no powers. Poor Perry and the Mrs. having problems. Talk about your action-packed issue. By the way, to brag a little bit, I now have Superman 217-423 to 423 in my collection. I'm going back as far as I can afford. On Action Comics, you probably have almost the entire DC Universe in this issue. It's always cool to see Superman carrying his fortress key in, prepare- in preparation for unlocking it. I'm not sure if his powers... I'm not sure of his powers back then, but could Cyborg have analyzed Brainiac for Superman to get some more information? I do like that some stories continue back and forth from action to Superman. I do smell a catfight between Lois and Lana soon. Spoiler alert, I guess, almost 40 years ago. I think this email is long enough, though. Hopefully it won't put your show over the hour mark. Keep up your usual great work, and thank you for keeping me entertained. Russell Bragg, Clarksburg, West Virginia. Well, good news. It didn't. I will say... First off, congratulations on getting a complete collection from 217 to 423. That me- That is a good chunk of Silver Age, as well as the entire Bronze Age. Well played, nice friend. Good job. And then the next day, Dave McIlvaney wrote on episode 62. I get that the idea of the story is that Superman keeps getting diverted from his primary mission, saving those kids by other pressing issues along the way. And it was a good, exciting story, but part of me kept thinking... Superman is not the only superhero in the world. He has a Justice League communicator. He ought to have been able to call for help from, say, Aquaman, Flash, Martian, Man- Martian Manhunter, Zatanna, or others. I realize it's Superman's book and he should be the focus, but it might have helped, and maybe made the tension even higher, if he'd call for help, but everyone else was busy with the- with other major situations. Maybe he did, off-panel. But a thought balloon showing that he had thought of that could have made the point that's a good point dave they, they, they never liked to do that and especially back in the these times granted it's marv's book and he was the one that was doing all the uh, crossover stuff wasn't he huh all right then on august 18th russell bragg wrote in again hi charlie talking about episode 58 superman number 388 well we finally got our lois lana cat fight it was a little short though i thought they might carry it on into at least another issue I guess it ended okay. I sort of understand Lois' feelings about Superman at this time. But she should have truly understood that Superman was conflicted. He wants to be with her, but his responsibilities prevent such a relationship. Without looking, I assume DC Comics Presents Annual Number 1, which is the team-up of Superman and Superman of Earth 2, was out by then. They talked a little about Earth-2 Supes' marriage to his Lois, so it was at least in his mindset. Maybe the four of them, Lo- Superman and Lois of Earth-1 and Superman and Lois of Earth-2, should have gotten together and talked things out. Or maybe had a double date. That might have been cool. That's a comic I would have loved to read. Did you notice Jimmy wearing a sweater with his suit and tie? I never wore a jacket, but I did dress this way sometimes in high school. After all that, now Justin thinks he has a chance with Lois? Poor fool. The other su- storyline was okay. We- didn't we all play Superman when we were kids? I don't think I had a Superman shirt back then but I always had a towel or blanket cape. However, I never set up a camera and lunged at it. I don't think we'll ever see this kid again, but it would be weird to discover you have mental powers and aliens want to take you to observe you. I did notice, even with his mental powers, he didn't know Superman was Clark Kent. We also got two shirt rips, copyright Michael Bailey. One authentic, the other Mickey Morris, pages four and eight. All in all, it was a good book. Continuation of stories and a new one. Plus, with Justin pining for Lois, the start of another. Can't wait to see what happens about forty years later. I honestly don't remember, but that's what you're here for. Thanks for having a, this. Thanks for having this swell podcast and for keeping me entertained. Russell, Brad, Clarksburg, West Virginia. Mickey does come back. I couldn't possibly tell you the issue. I think it's one. I think it's an action, and I think it's uh, when action is doing their two stories in an issue, and it's. I want to say it's probably the backup story john wilson would be probably the best one to ask about that but yes mickey does come back uh, as, as for um the justin thing believe it or not that was it isn't that weird i mean nothing happened after that it's almost like the like they had an idea and then sometime during the rest of the work when carrie was obviously working on his own for a little bit he was just like yeah i don't feel like messing with it and then marv changed his mind about it too i don't know Moving up closer to the present, Dave McIlvany left a comment on episode 63, geeking on Superman in the Bronze Age out number 17. Well, I'm glad that Vartox got back to his own body. No one but the one true Vartox could really pull off that look. I'm not entirely sure how or when Vartox managed to get into Wallace Gerkheim's body, but I'm glad he did. On your point about Gerkheim's creepiness being something he probably should get therapy for, I'd imagine his suicide attempt would be even higher on the list for things he might need therapy for. Presumably, WGBS will offer benefits that will allow him to pursue this option. You know, you totally got me on that. I was so worried about the creepiness, the suicide thing didn't even come into play in my brain. But yes, the man needs some help. And granted, getting a job puts him on the right track, but still, he needs some like therapy pretty bad. Which is another reason why I'm kind of not sure why Lana would assure him he would have a job. I don't know how it was in the 80s, but I would imagine that workplace was a little bit different then and they they maybe wouldn't have hired him if they knew that they had such, if he had such mental problems. Just saying all right then on September 1st, Dave McIlvaney commented on episode 64. First of all, I have to say that the immortal man and this our incarnation at least bears a remarkable resemblance to Perry White. Odd. I was going to suggest an explanation for how Vandal Savage knew about the Golden Temples and how to use them, even though the world's governments had suppressed the knowledge of them by suggesting that, as a man who was possibly a couple of million years old, he's had plenty of time to work his influence insidiously on the agents of those governments. Then I realized this was happening on Earth-1, and he had recently arrived from Earth-2, so my alternative explanation is that there were things similar to the temples on Earth-2, which he had discovered and tried to exploit, but was unsuccessful, perhaps due to the action of the JSA or other heroes of that world, and he used what he'd learned then to take advantage of the similar temples on Earth-1. It's just a hypothesis. It's possible. I would think that they would have mentioned that, but it's possible. does make sense. A lot more than him just having scientists figure it out. All right, uh, then Dave also commented on episode 65, which was last episode. And he writes, Your thoughts on the end of this episode about the possibilities of a trial of Vandal Savage were intriguing. By this point in the Bronze Age, the existence of Earth 2 must have been fairly public knowledge, and I wonder if there would have been laws and regulations involved in traveling between the Earths, or at least in resettling from one to another. Would Vandal Savage be treated as an illegal immigrant and deported back to his home Earth? Is there an extradition treaty between the Earths? Is there some sort of Earth-2 embassy that might help with his legal defense against charges on Earth-1? I would find those questions pretty interesting, but I don't know that there would be such strong appeal for a comic book story exploring them. Alright, I'm afraid I'm going to have to disagree with you a little bit on this one, Dave. The issues before this kind of made it clear, well, I don't know about clear, but kind of insinuated that no one knows much about the whole Earth-1, Earth-2 thing. They didn't understand anything, and... vandal savage has no criminal record on earth one which was why he was able to own a company and all that stuff all the stuff that happened during the whole storyline anyway so i want and they'd already looked up his records so i one i don't think he'd be treated as an illegal immigrant two i don't know about how things are on earth two but on earth one they apparently don't know about the whole multiple earth thing which i guess makes sense because so i i'm pretty sure and i'm no expert on dc Comics. But I'm pretty sure that that the only people who have crossed between the Earths are the superheroes and the supervillains. I don't think anyone even realizes there are multiple worlds or multiple Earths until we get to the Crisis. Therefore, I think Vandal would just be treated as basically like Lex Luthor during the Man of Steel miniseries. The John Burns Man of Steel miniseries. Where, you know, he has no record and therefore... You know, with good, expensive lawyers, they could probably get him off and he'd be fine. That's what I'm thinking. But I, you know, but you're right. In 1984, I don't know. Well, one, I don't know that they could do that as a storyline. And two, I don't know that Julie Schwartz would do that as a storyline because that's just not the kind of comics he did. Especially with Superman, he was doing very, he edited very plot oriented stories. I don't think he would allow. A long ongoing story involving a trial he says i was just about to make a joke about the fact that he did that in the flash but he wasn't editing flash at that point so i don't know what i'm talking about anyway i hope you all i want to thank you all for listening i want to thank dave and russell for writing in and i hope you all have a wonderful week and or week or two i don't know exactly when the next episode will be coming out it'll be coming out soon just i don't know the exact date uh, so I hope you hope you all have a great couple of weeks. And I will be back next time with some more super stories. I believe the next time is a Dave McIlvaney. Apparently I just listened to the Daves. Uh, but next time we will be looking at a Dave McIlvaney suggested story. Which was the amazing story of Superman Red and Superman Blue. So we'll see that n- We'll see that next time. I'll see it next time. You guys won't be able to see it. It's an audio thing. Anyway, I hope you all have a great couple of weeks, and I will see you then. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Charlie's Geekcast. Feedback for the show can be sent to charliesgeekcast at gmail.com, or you can feel free to leave a comment at the show's posting at charliesgeekcast.com. All images and music heard on the show are copyrighted by the respective copyright holders and are used for entertainment purposes only. No infringement is intended. Charlie's Geekcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Please be sure to stop by 2 True Freaks to check out more great shows. Thank you again for listening and good night.